Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of Lost to Time. I'm your host, Joshua Mallard, and Lost to Time is a podcast where we shine light on composers, instrumentalists, and more whose music has been wrongfully lost to time. So all music makers who should be more acknowledged, we're putting a spotlight on them. Now, today we're joined again by guest host Han Hitchin. Welcome back to the show, Han. Thank you for having me on the second episode, Josh. I really appreciate being here. Well, I hope you enjoyed the conversation last time, where of course we talked about Julia Perry. So those tuning in, if you didn't hear last episode, go back and we talk about Julia Perry, wonderful composer. (laughs) I think Han would agree. Yes, I do. So today we're talking about Undine Smith-Moore. Before we do that, I want to get into some of the camp activities. CAMP is the Contemporary Art Music Project, and it's an organization that promotes innovative art music by collaborating with living composers and performing artists from around the world. Now, let me just tell you, there's a ton of stuff going on, and there's a ton of stuff that's already gone on that you might want to tune into. So, Han, how about you give us the rundown really quick? Sure. So, a little while back on September 30th was their NAC Benefit concert and open discussion which featured new music by minority composers and performers that was live streamed on youtube and is still available and just two days ago on sunday october 3rd was the in tempore concert that took place in the tamuka art arts white house in orlando florida but that was also streamed to youtube and is still available on tamuka's youtube channel Yep, you can find it there. And they've even posted the individual piece of João Pedro Oliveira's piece in Tempore, which the concert's named after. Now, that was such an awesome concert. And you're going to love the visual um, from the piano. So Unmiko, the co-founder of Camp, played that piece. And of course, there's some amazing uh, other musicians on the concert, one of them being Zach Hale, another one of our podcast hosts. And you were tuned in too, Han, right? Yeah, I was. And it was really awesome. There were also not one, but two world premieres on that concert. Um, Two Plus by Anya Vu and Simple Sonatina by Michael Timpson. Yes, amazing pieces, really fun concert, and there's more to come. So how about you tell us a bit about that, Han? Yeah, so don't worry if you missed the last two concerts because there's one more happening this Saturday, October 9th at 7 p.m., It's Camp's Constellations concert happening at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Tampa, Florida. Um, It's going to be happening both in person and also streamed live to YouTube on Camp's YouTube channel. So please be sure to check it out. And of course, if you're a composer or performer, Camp is taking submissions for Camp Ground 22. That's Camp's inaugural new music festival. And you can submit right now. And I think the deadline is Halloween. Yes, Halloween, October 31st, to be more specific. Yes, and we're in the spooky season. A lot's changed (laughs) since last time. We're over in State College, Pennsylvania, and it's getting cold. So if it's cold where you are, buckle up, relax, and we're going to get right into Undine Smith-Moore. So Undine Smith-Moore is definitely a big name as far as uh, women composers go. Undine Smith-Moore is a black woman composer um, in the 20th century. And I'd say probably the most prominent Um, from what we've read. What we're going to dig into is not only her life and her work, but also kind of a look and a tie-in to today. Like, is such a prominent composer still represented? And this is just a big question. What happens to composers after they die? 
And it's something we explored with Julia Perry. And we've just been going down rabbit holes of, you know, seeing how this stuff plays out for other composers of marginalized groups. Uh, so <laughs> we were pretty torn on selecting for this episode between like, you know, Moore and also Julius Eastman and some other really awesome composers. So this is the one we're going to do this time on Dean Smith Moore. But we've kept you waiting long enough. Let's jump into Moore's life. So let's start from the beginning. A big question with people of color, um, especially during a time where uh, Moore was alive, is how did they get into music? How'd they get musical training? What did that whole process look like? And especially how'd they end up composing? Um, it's definitely just a big rabbit hole, depending on, <laughs> I guess it'd be a deep rabbit hole, depending on who you look into. It's so many different stories. So let's rewind it back. So Han, how about you kick this off for us? Sure. So Moore was born in 1904 and was the youngest of her parents, James William Smith and Hardy Turnbull Smith. She was born in Jurat, Virginia, and she lived there up until her family moved four years later to Petersburg, Virginia. And when she turned seven, Moore began taking piano lessons with her teacher, Lillian Allen Darden. So that's where the musical connection is. And of course, we've talked about the big question is how accessible is musical training to people of color during a time like this? And then how, is, how accessible is it also to women and women of color? So all these things kind of compound, but Moore did get piano lessons from a young age. And we've just seen a trend of starting young <laughs> leads to people doing a lot of music in the future. Um, but yeah, Moore was the granddaughter of slaves. And in 1908, it just was not easy to get formal education on Western classical music traditions. But her father, James William Smith, had a well-paying job, um, I believe as a railroad worker of some kind, and he bought an upright piano. So I don't know. I always imagine maybe all the daughters play piano. And after a while, Moore is ends up in lessons um, with, it was Lillian Allen Darden. So that's kind of where it all began, the musical training, upright piano. And this is a childhood filled with music, apparently, from the words of Moore. Yeah, she always described Petersburg, her childhood town, as a place saturated with music. And er in the early 1920s, um, black people were still barred from performing in public theaters and attending public theaters. But music still could be found in more communal places such as churches, homes, neighbors' homes, and other private venues. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting note. Um, we're going to see the Harlem Renaissance happen just a while after this. And basically, it's like black music at the time. It's not in concert halls. It's out in the city and the scene. Um, so this is just like a, a big tie-in. And actually, um, there's a quote from Moore that says, there was never a lack of places to perform on whatever level one was able. Sunday school, the church, the church socials, and suppers. This was in 1981. And Moore also said, Petersburgers in the days of my childhood were deeply involved in what they called the silver tea. Dramatic pieces were spoken, delectable foods were served, but above all else, music reigned. So this is just really awesome one that 
we have word from more herself on what her childhood was like, what her hometown was like. And we can kind of reflect on like these big movements of music for, for black people in America and how that kind of shapes a composer. Absolutely. Being in an environment where music is such an important part of your life from such a young age can leave such a big impact on you. And that is how a lot of people come into their careers as musicians, as composers, performers, whatever it may be. And it's really great that Moore was one of these people, not only in of itself, but in this time period. Yeah. And we're going to see this tie into a lot of Moore's perspective on like, oh, we don't want to spoil too much, but like incorporating black music into other listening spaces and like really just being an advocate for black music. Uh, but this actually almost like made me think of like even, I mean, it's it's a tangent, but like cage, you know, like the music around you kind of thing where Moore is very cognizant as a child of like, this vibrant musical landscape around her. Yes. So I guess from here, we see more leave Virginia and Lillian Allen Darden, remember the, the pianist who's giving her lessons, was a graduate of Fisk University, and she encouraged Moore to start studying there. Um, so this is kind of the jumping off point as far as Moore's education goes. Yeah. And it just gets good from here. So in 1924, not only did Moore get to study at Fisk, but she earned a the first ever scholarship actually to study there from the Juilliard School so she could continue her undergraduate studies there. So this is actually a tricky thing I found this this particular part. The details get kind of muddled a bit. I believe this was a scholarship that she got while at Fisk. Mm -hmm. So Juilliard gave her the first uh, scholarship given to a Fisk University student. Ah. And she actually didn't end up continuing by going to Juilliard, um, but she did other things. Um, so she graduated in 1926 and received her undergraduate from Fisk and then went on to study at Manhattan School Music, Columbia University Teachers College, and it was at Columbia that she received an MA. And I believe that was um, a teaching degree, like a music teaching degree um, and a professional diploma in 1931. So just to reiterate that timeline, that's the degree from Columbia, the MA, undergraduate at Fisk. And then here's where some different composition stuff plays in. Maybe you can jump into that, Han. Yeah, so for some time, Moore actually studied composition and took composition lessons with Howard Murphy at the Manhattan School of Music. In addition to this, she also attended composition workshops that were hosted at the Eastman School of Music. So she was getting around <laughs> to oh, yes. some, some big schools, um, and that's two degrees. So mm -hmm. that's a big accomplishment during this time. It's just like, do you see people of color, especially women of color, getting upper education like that. Um, so I just think that's a huge accomplishment. And it's, I mean, even today, it's not super common to see someone with two degrees from, you know, American people of color households, especially in like music. Mm -hmm. So Moore accomplished a lot. And it wasn't just in school. 
Um, so maybe Han, you can jump into some of these accomplishments. Sure. So one of the biggest things that she did was she co-founded and co-directed the Black Music Center at Virginia State from 1969 to 1972. And this center was responsible for bringing Black composers, performers, and lecturers to the campus to talk with students, share their experiences, talk about their careers. And this was a really big deal because this is showing young students, especially other students of color, um, leaders and mentors who and professionals in the field, which I think is really awesome. Yeah, this is something we'll dig into later on once we tie this all together. But more was putting in the work and mm-hmm. putting it in academia. So more is not just a composer, but a very accomplished educator. Yes. And going from there, she actually received an honorary doctorate of music, not just from Virginia State in 1972, but also from Indiana University in 1976, four years later. So we went from two degrees to three degrees. That's a doctorate. (laughs) I mean, that's just really awesome. Uh, So obviously well-educated. And of course, we mentioned that she received that Juilliard um, scholarship at a time, even though she would pass on it. if I'm getting that correct. But there's a lot of other awards, like, for example, a Humanitarian Award from Fisk University in 1973. Um, she was a music laureate, laureate of the state of Virginia. Um, and also the NANM gave her an Outstanding Educator Award. And this is really cool, too. She was invited to deliver a keynote address at the first National Congress of Women in Music. And this was at New York in at New York University in 1981. And the list doesn't stop there. Oh, it certainly doesn't. So in 1984, she received the Candace Award from the National Coalition of 100 Black Women. And just the following year, 1985, she was given the Virginia Governor's Award in the Arts. So she is just stacking up in all these honors and recognitions and honorary degrees and we haven't even gotten to the meat and potatoes here yet. Well, the the big cap on this is um, more is Pulitzer Prize nominated. Um, so one of the pieces we'll talk about later in oratorio scenes from the life of a martyr um, was a Carnegie Hall premiere. Mm-hmm. Very amazing. People say it's her biggest work and it's Pulitzer Prize nominated. And we do see a more recent award. Um, the Virginia Women in History, uh, well, Moore was named one of the Virginia Women in History in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't just say these awards to be like, oh, look, Moore was, you know, flexing on everyone. Yeah. But we're, we're conveying to you that Moore was incredibly active. Moore was putting in the work. And this is just a big sign. Like, it's a red flag when people that are accomplished and very active are just not represented today. Um, So I guess just building off of that, we didn't talk much about Moore's output. Um, Maybe you can get into that, Han. Yeah, so Moore really had things start rolling in the 1950s. Um, During this time, a lot of her work revolved around choral arrangements and spirituals, actually. She was drawing a lot of music from her youth, being surrounded by music in churches um, that involved a lot of spiritual music. So amidst all that, she was also teaching a lot. 
So there was a lot of variety in her work, and that resulted in a lot of her achievements. Yes. And we'll dig a bit more into, I guess, the the way variety plays into the pieces we've selected, but I just wanted to take a second and talk about, you know, teaching. It's amazing how accomplished she is just as an educator. Um, and I just think that's a really big deal. When we were talking about Julia Perry, I remember we mentioned that Perry went on to study with Nadia Boulanger, who's obviously a famous, super accomplished teacher with uh, really a lot of students who are very well known. Oh, yeah. um, and that was just kind of like a big deal of like people with not a lot of accessibility to formal music education, um, that being people of color and women of color at the time, someone is able to, you know, end up studying with what many would consider one of the greatest teachers out there. Um, and I just think it's amazing to see that um, Moore is so invested in education as well, is involved in upper education. And I just think it's, you know, definitely a big shame that someone like Moore, who was teaching, who was actively trying to change um, curriculums, is not represented in a lot of curriculums today. No, I fully agree. And I also think that not only that, but I also think it's very important that she was a teacher because a lot of students, you know, they look up to their teachers as mentors and having a teacher who you can identify with, not just in a similar interest in wanting to be a composer or a musician or whatever it may be, but also in that shared ethnic identity, that shared gender identity, religious identity. I think that is so such an important thing for students to have, especially those from minority groups in academia. Yeah, I mean, that's just a big deal. Even today, um, I mean, <laughs> if I talk about myself, I think I'm the first composer in, um, in my family. Um, but having a musical family is not just about having composers, you know, it, and not just about having classical musicians. Um, we talked about how Moore was inspired by like so much going around going on around her city, there's literally the the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and I guess before we get into um, the the pieces we selected, I know everyone wants to get there. Um, I just wanted to kind of tie this all back to that 1950s part where her output really starts going. Like this is attached to the civil rights movement. Moore was impacted by those events, um, understandably. and the motivation to um, introduce, you know, black music into her output makes a lot of sense. And having choral works that are um, based on spirituals and biblical texts and stuff is definitely um, something that really makes sense for uh, Moore, given all we know about her childhood and inspirations. Yeah, and I think that's a great point, especially the bit about current events impacting and influencing people. Um, and how the civil rights did that for more, because even today we listen to a lot of new music and a lot of the music today is political in the sense where it's commenting or reflecting or taking a stance on current issues, current events, um, whether they be localized to specific regions or countries or more global issues. And I think that the fact that these current events are impacting not just composers, but artists of all mediums is a big deal and something that we just cannot 
we just can't look that over. We have to bring that up. Yeah. And I guess um, if we didn't hammer it home enough <laughs> in our, our big blurb, um, Moore was in the early 20th century Jim Crow era segregated U.S. Uh, this is just not a good time to be in. And I, I just feel like if I was in those times, it would be so stifling mm-hmm. as an artist. So it's definitely like a very interesting story arc how Moore was, you know, started as a pianist, was inspired by the area around her, became a huge educator, and is now considered one of the most prominent women composers, black women composers of the 20th century. So, I mean, (laughs) if we talk about storylines and arcs and stuff, this is just like definitely really inspirational and really awesome to dig into. Um, But I mean, that's why we had such a tough time picking the composers for this episode. Um, When you start digging into them, there's context beyond just their biography, if you will. I mean, it makes us think about these times, right? <laughs> it really does, and it makes us think about our own, um, our own paths as composers and artists. Yeah, we'll have a big, uh, you know, <laughs> mask pictures, and you know, this is oh, just yeah. like a historic time where it's changed how we write music, just like the civil rights movement changed how um, Moore wrote music. Yes, but um. Yeah, as far as the biography goes, I think it can be really fun to dig up more information if you can, if you're tuned in. Definitely um, don't just take our word for it, you know. It's a big deal. I think um, educators, if you're looking to put this stuff in your curriculum, dive into the unknown. Yes. You know, do your research and um, see what you can dig up um, with (laughs) with those big educator brains of yours. Yes, please do. We definitely want to hear more pieces by more of these composers. Now let's get into the music. This is what you've all been waiting for. Um, so we're going to start with um, actually a quote from Moore. So Moore said, Both in my home life and as a student at Fisk University, I was surrounded by these great musical expressions by the Afro-American people. Moore also said in um, conversation with Undine Moore, composer and master teacher, my earlier compositions at Fisk and later at Columbia University did not reflect my background with spirituals. It suddenly dawned on me that the songs my mother sang while cooking dinner, the melodies my father hummed after work moved me very deeply. I began to write down the melodies they sang for vague, undefined reasons. This is amazing. I mean, in the sense where I love that we can have quotes from the composer. It was a bit harder finding Julia Perry quotes, so I'm glad that there's, you know, more quotes. <laughs> Undine Smith more quotes. No pun intended. Yeah. Out there um, that we can really kind of look at because these pieces we've selected are extremely diverse. Um, but I just also think it's great that Moore is very self-aware of like, her childhood, where she's at in her education, and where her music's at. So mm-hmm. I just think um, it's really cool that um, we see sort of this um, influence of the past making its way to the present um, in a way that, you know, might inspire some of you out there. 
just thinking like, what was your childhood like? And where are you now? Yeah, maybe think about the ways that your childhood did impact you as an artist today. I mean, I'm sure many of us can think of melodies, whether they be from TV shows from when you were toddlers or before that, if you didn't have TV shows when you were a toddler. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, yeah, I mean, we're talking about someone who like existed before TV, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we are young folks on this podcast, as you could tell. Yes. Um, we, we, didn't, we were born with smartphones, but we have a long time with smartphones, internet, all that stuff. Yeah, my mind went to Barney and Sesame Street, y'all. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, anyways, not to dilute our point, but Moore is making a really um, interesting statement here that um, this these academic institutions that gave her Western classical art music traditions, um, she was able to look at that and see a disconnect between the music of her childhood, the music in her home life. I mean, it's kind of like a folk influence, you know, like mm -hmm. black music in America is, is what's being talked about here. Um, and I know when we think of folk music, it's like um, most people probably don't think of what folk music was like for for slaves for African American people back then, um, who are you know disconnected from their homeland, obviously through slavery, mm -hmm. and also disconnected from it, like few generations now. As a reminder, Moore is a granddaughter of slaves, so this is already a couple generations separated from her ancestors' homeland. Yes. So all that's to say that Moore had some shifts. Um, not only was Moore like really interested in incorporating black music into her output and bringing it to um, concert halls, but also in bringing black music to education curriculums, you know, bringing it to college campuses, um, public school classrooms, really getting this into a space where it's, it's um, kind of inhabiting an equal footing with the white music of the time, um, getting people to reconsider their perspective on black music as well. We'll talk about that after the pieces, um, but there's three pieces we selected, and that is a big, I guess, preface of how diverse they are. We definitely encourage you to check out some more besides these three, but with all that said, this first one is Before I'd Be a Slave. So this is really an interesting one. We mentioned that Moore didn't start composing until her 50s. So this is actually one written in 1953. So you could consider it to be an early composition work, even though she'd been doing arrangements up to that point. We'll talk a little bit about um, more of why she composed so much later in her life. Um, but there's actually some words by Moore on this piece. The words provided on the piece are... It follows a program which I would hope is evident in the music without verbal explanation. In general, in frustration and chaos of slaves who wish to be free, in the depths, a slow and ponderous struggle marked by attempts to escape, any way, being bound, almost successful attempt at flight. Tug of war with the oppressors, a measure of freedom won, some upward movement less lacerating, continued aspiration, determination, 
affirmation. So it's really great that we have these performance notes from Moore, and I think those are some great, compelling words. Now, Han, what do you think of that? Um, you know, especially in context of how this piece sounds, especially admits uh, Moore's current repertoire. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the words that Moore leaves us really do help us understand the impact, the long lasting impact that slavery has had, not just on the slaves themselves, but future generations, the children of slaves, grandchildren of slaves like Moore, and eventually, you know, great grandkids and so on and so forth. And even today, there are struggles that people face because of slavery. You know, there's generational wealth that a lot of people don't have access to simply because either their ancestors were slaves or they're the same demographic of people who were slaves or had less rights in this country. Mm -hmm. Actually, yeah, I think you're hitting on a great point because there's actually a lot of context to this. Like, Moore was doing this stuff in the midst of the civil rights movement. Uh, a slow and ponderous struggle is part of that that text and like a tug of war with the oppressors. Um, and I think it's so interesting that, um, you know, Moore is, as we said, reacting to current events. This is a reflection on Moore's experience, on the black experience in America at this point. And can you imagine like how... Um, big of a statement this must be at the, in the 50s um and of course like yeah this is stuff we still talk about today how slavery is taught you know even mm -hmm. um or like um what slavery impacts are on on people today um but i i think that's definitely like such an interesting point to get in on um and there's another cool thing. It says, it follows a program which I hope is evident in the music without verbal explanation. So like all these, all these words we're reading now um, are not necessarily meant to be, you know, absorbed by an audience listening to this. Um, it's evident in the music. And I would agree, like I can sense the struggle in the music. I know <laughs> this is entirely subjective, but if you listen to this piece, those tuning in, you're going to see like this, like uh, this, uh, I guess, aggressive um, shifting textures, aggressive rhythms, polyrhythms, really dark textures. It really surprised me. Um, I mean, did, did you get the same sort of feeling of like the text reflecting that? I guess that text being represented in the music before you, you read this. Well, yeah, the first time I listened to this piece, I got the I got those vibes, but I didn't as strongly like having the text did help give even more context. And I knew that when my first listen of the piece happened, that it was going towards the direction as well as the title. I mean, the title definitely. Yeah, the title is, I guess, the inkling. Like, it, it, even if you don't read this performance note, the title and the nature of the piece will probably jump out at you. Mm -hmm. Um. It, it did seem like there's a struggle being portrayed in the piece. But yes. that being said, if you're a fan at all of like, you know, 20th century piano works, if you're if you're listening to like Boulez or like, um, I don't know, Zanakis or anything like that. I mean, we're hitting on a wide range <laughs> with those two alone. But like um, any any 20th century piano works, if you're keyed into this stuff, then you're going to like a piece like this. Um, 
And if not, I think you're going to still connect with the struggle that's being portrayed here. But um, it's so interesting where this fits in to the style of Moore's compositions at the time. Um, Moore was doing choral arrangements for a very long time, and they were not of this character. Um, and a lot of Moore's other pieces are not of this kind of character. Um, so part of me was thinking, like, does this have to do with, like, you know, <laughs> academic education is more absorbing Western tradition and like the trends of the time um, and actively participating in that kind of style. You know, a lot of like systematic composition, dissonant stuff, um, things like that. Um, or is it, as we see in these notes, a portrayal, a synthesis of those things into portraying like a struggle? Um, I don't know. That's super interesting because I think Moore would consider this to be black music, you know? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, and I, I think I would as well. And I mean, there's a quote um, that we'll read later a bit on like how Moore considers black music and what it is and what it means and the style and everything like about that. But um, I guess we could say like this is music created by a black person about black struggle. And so, yeah, it is. It's black music, um, mm -hmm. no matter what sort of like, um, I guess, Western compositional approaches went into it, you know? Absolutely. And I fully agree with that. Yeah. Such such an awesome piece. Like really listen to this thing. Uh, I mean, this reminds me of like, for example, Han has these these pieces like with such dense polyrhythms and dark textures. Mm -hmm. I think Han would love i think you loved this piece I but i love this piece I think yeah. <laughs> anyone who who is in han's camp will like this piece but um i it, it, there's a nice score video on youtube mm -hmm. so if Please you like check it out yeah it's really interesting it's really and just having the text as well um to kind of give you an idea of what the piece is kind of like what inspired more to write this and what kind mm -hmm. of inspired those textures um definitely makes the listening experience more interesting, I feel like. Yeah. It's a piece that already, without all of that context, is really interesting. I almost wish, you know, we could time travel back because it'd be awesome to tell people, like, listen to this piece without that program note and then listen to it again after reading the program note. Um, just like that sort of exercise of, of what you can pick up. Um, but there's a nice um, performance by Maria Corley on YouTube there's um, the standalone audio, but there's also a score video that you'll find on YouTube just by typing Before I'd Be a Slave by Undine Smith-Moore. Super, super excellent piece. Um, and I'm just like riveted by um, this text. There's some details here for like <laughs> the nerdy listeners tuning in, like some interesting stuff in the score. Like there's, there's um, text that says tug of war, great power, and like imitative instructions like like a xylophone mm -hmm. um i think that's super interesting like the english text in there but also like tug of war um being part of like the tug of war with the oppressors yep but as much as this is a piece of of struggle um there's that positive side at the end of of the text like this is something to be empowered by you know yes before i'd be a slave this is you know something a bit triumphant in a way yeah, it's definitely a, I feel like it's almost, what's the right, what's the word? It's like you're grabbing rain of your own self and your own identity and just kind of 
confidently stating, you know, your worth and who you are and that you are more than whatever it was history tried to deem you or your ancestors as, you know? Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. I mean, I think you said it well, but, you know, the text really says it well. Uh, it puts what you're saying in the word. A measure of freedom won, some upward, upward movement less lacerating. Um, so this is a time of progress of um, Undine Swift more observing the world, the changing landscape of America, going from segregation to desegregation, you know, mm-hmm. um, going through this civil rights conflict, trying to shake off Jim Crow laws, things like that. And it's honestly a struggle that still goes on today. We feel echoes of that time and things that we're still working on. And part of that is keeping music like this out there. So solo piano piece. People can play this. Yes, please. We want to see this on more piano recital programs. Like, come on, this is gonna, this is such a great piece. And if this isn't your cup of tea, the next piece is sure to be because there's so much diversity and Moore's output. It's just <laughs> really interesting, especially for someone who technically started their compositional output in their 50s yeah. and in the 1950s. Yes. Um, so this next piece is Love Let the Wind Cry, How I Adore Thee. So how about you, Han? Tell us a bit about this one. It's another short one. Some of these are short and sweet, so we encourage you to check them out. Absolutely. So Love Let the Wind Cry, How I Adore Thee, Adore adore Thee, not Dorothy, is actually an art song. Um, It's about a two-minute long art song. And Moore wrote this for the wedding of her friends, Jewel and Leon Taylor Thompson, they got married in the summer of 1961, and this is where that was premiered. That's what it was written for. And it was dedicated to the, at the time, newly married couple. Um, the text comes from the ancient Greek poet Sappho, and the text itself, which you can look up online, it's about six stanzas long, and the text is very declarative of of the love of another person. So it's very romantic. (laughs) It's very lovey-dovey. And the way that Moore sets this text very much is in character with it. It's, It's very virtuosic, very declarative. It sounds like literally a person standing on the mountaintops being like, I really love you. You are awesome. I mean, the literal first words of the text is love, let the wind cry on the dark mountain. So to me, that just mm-hmm. paints a picture in my head right then and there of the vocalist standing on a mountain declaring their love for whoever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this was for a wedding. This is like uh, a big moment for um, the friends that more wo- wrote this for. Um, but this is such a big contrast from before I'd be a slave. Oh yes. <laughs> they're they're opposites like as far as like the the angst and and like um frustration in before I'd be a slave and this one is obviously more like an over swelling over overwhelming sense of love. Yeah, and I think that's really important to have and show that, you know, composers while we do write and not just composers, artists of all mediums, we not only create stuff based off of you know, very politically and socially driven topics. But we also will write about things that might be more personal to us, like, oh, my friend is getting married. I want to write a piece to celebrate that with them or some other joyous occasion. I mean, there's plenty of composers who I've seen who will write pieces upon the birth of their children and stuff. So there's just a whole slew of 
um, inspirations that get us writing and creating. Very true. Um, I mean, just from our Julia Perry episode last time, remember Perry had uh, extra musical inspirations of being in her father's office. And here there's an impetus for more to compose something in a completely different style than before I'd be a slave, which is the wedding mm-hmm. of um, what I assume are, are two of her friends. Yes. Um, so I just think that's really cool. And another thing that's really interesting is, yes, this is 1961. The previous piece we showed was 1953, completely different style. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening to like um, any art songs like, you know, Schumann, all those German composers, um, you would like an art song like this, you know. Um, this is something vocalists can perform. It's not a super long piece. And I say that to say that this is something that should be in concert halls more. Yes. Um, you know, it's something people can pick up, you know, for a recital, for a nice inclusion in the program, things like that. Um, and it, it's from the angle of like, the two pieces we've discussed so far are of great merit and Mm -hmm. possibly the only reason they're not included has to do with Moore's race. Yeah. And these pieces, even on themselves, they are wonderful pieces. I mean, we could have a whole recital on Undine Smith Moore's music. I think that would be awesome. Well, thankfully, some people have been sort of reviving this. We're going to talk about that a bit more later. um, But Castle of Our Skins on their concert series, Ain't I a Woman, had, um, well, this is a project. So it was about black feminism through music, um, arts, and spoken word. Um, And one of the composers they put on this was Undine Smith Moore. So there's a recording of this piece on YouTube um, that you can watch. So definitely check that out. It's on their channel. And if you just search Undine Smith Moore, it even comes up. Yes. And it was the performance at, Hibernian Hall in 2018. 2018. So this is recent. I love to see, um, you know, a recent recording of this. And of course, uh, we know Castle of Our Skins is constantly, you know, putting forth work of lost music. Yes. Not sponsored, but they're awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, But we'll talk a bit more about like revival efforts in the context of that um, later after we talk about this next piece. Mm Mm-hmm. So scenes from the life of a martyr. This is the big one. This is like a really monumental piece and considered to be Moore's greatest piece or I guess, yeah, most significant in her output. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't always like to compare pieces to other pieces and composers output, but this definitely is super noteworthy for a few reasons. Um, First off, it's a 16 part um, oratorio. Um, cantata cantata okay i've seen it described as both but (laughs) okay listeners be the judge um and the libretto is in honor of dr martin luther king jr Uh, and this was following king's assassination yes so um if i'm remembering correctly Moore made this piece um for herself for dr king is what she said Mm -hmm. so like this was something personally important to Moore. um And this premiered at Carnegie Hall in 1981. So black woman composer. Moore's been composing or alive and active doing teaching and composing for such a long time. This is one of her latest works. And it's at Carnegie Hall. 
And another thing is it's Pulitzer Prize nominated. Yes. It was Pulitzer Prize nominated in 1981. Oh, yes. So this is... It should have won. <laughs> yeah, this could definitely have won if you listen to it. Um, it's amazing. And this is a big, big deal. Because, I mean, this getting premieres in Carnegie Hall, getting Pulitzer Prize nominations, that's not something every composer does. Mm-hmm. Even great composers. Yeah, they don't just hand out Pulitzer not just the prizes, but the nominations themselves like candy. Like that's not, that's a big, big deal. <laughs> if they start doing that, I'll take some candy. Yeah, I mean, like. I like candy. Um, but so there's excerpts on YouTube. Um, but just talking about this piece, it's just, it's one of those pieces that is just like monumental. It's like when, um, when we were listening to like the Julia Perry pieces, some of them are just like so big in scope. <laughs> so amazing and craft this is something you need to listen to um and unfortunately there's just not many recordings of it like period mm-hmm. uh despite it being such a monumental work getting pulitzer prize nominated and so uh, i mean that's just something of its own to talk about you know yeah definitely i mean even when we were looking up recordings for this we were for the most part, only finding excerpts. And even then, the excerpts were pretty short, maybe only a couple minutes long at most. Yeah, the excerpts you can find on YouTube are like from um, the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, uh, different movements like um, uh, Movement 15, 16. Um, so, I mean, I'd, I'd love to see more recordings of this in entirety. Yes, me too. And, of course, we're talking about just searching YouTube and this is like a big discussion. This is something that we wanted to um, put after we've discussed these pieces, and that's how is Moore's legacy today? Mm-hmm. Are these pieces still out there? Is there a, I, I, I dislike this term for a good reason, rediscovering of Moore's work, mm-hmm. because these are pieces that, that were discovered, they were appreciated, and um, these are composers who broke through all the adversity, um, and now they're back in obscurity mm-hmm. um, after their deaths. So what's going on? I mean, this is like the moral of our show. This is our MO. Like um, These composers are lost to time more, and this piece is lost to time. Um, so let's just unpack that a bit. Like We mentioned YouTube. We've been giving you YouTube links, and um, YouTube is easily one of the biggest streaming services out. Um, and for young people like us, we consume music through streaming services like, you know, YouTube, Spotify, Apple music, and many average listeners do today as well. Mm -hmm. So I was reading more composed over a hundred works and I think almost three quarters of them, like a, a very significant amount of them are, um, you know, inaccessible in some way or don't have recordings and specifically, they don't have recordings online. Yeah. So Julia Perry had a lot of recordings when we talked about Julia Perry, or a lot of, I guess, performances yes. and some recordings, um, but by major orchestras. And of course, this is we just talked about a Pulitzer Prize-nominated piece premiered in Carnegie Hall. Where's the full YouTube yeah. you know, performance of that? And if you look at the, the production of the excerpts that we did find, it's really high quality production. So to me, it makes it obvious like, yeah, this recording happened relatively recently. I mean, 
I would want to say in the past like five or 10 years. So a recording has to exist, but where is the full recording? Yeah. And I guess what we want to get at is that the role of the internet in preserving the legacy of people like Moore, people like Julia Perry, even later composers, like we we talked about discussing Julius Eastman in an episode. Mm -hmm. And like, it's just one of those things like, uh, I feel like today, maybe the internet is doing a positive role in keeping these pieces accessible to just about anyone with an internet connection. Absolutely. And I think the internet is a huge stepping stone for accessibility, even from a completely non-musical standpoint. I mean, with with the pandemic, a lot of concerts started to be streamed on online services onto YouTube or Facebook live stream or whatever platform was possible. But concerts that suddenly were not available to people outside of the, the local communities, anyone in the world can tune in um, for free. And I think that that is absolutely awesome. And I've been seeing a lot of push for keeping streams available, especially as people are getting vaccinated, wearing masks, going back to in-person events to, hey, we shouldn't suddenly stop the live stream of these events. We should keep them up because there's probably tons of people who either are interested or otherwise just can't come in person for whatever reason. And I think that having these pieces by these composers available online is another excellent example of why we need love how the internet provides accessibility to larger audiences. Yes, very true. Um, so something needs to be done to be preserving these works. And of course, um, it's amazing that, you know, we saw the castle of our skins recording. Um, we, the other recordings we found, those give us a leg to stand on when discussing Moore's work, when wanting to revive Moore's work. Um, and when composers, you know, pass away, we don't want their music to pass away with them. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe the internet can preserve these things. Because um, of course, I mean, I would argue that even academics, you know, are obviously using streaming services. Mm -hmm. If you have to dig through library catalogs or find CDs to find recordings of works, or if you have to dig through libraries to get scores, it's, it's hard to get pieces performed. Um, and of course, Moore's work spans such a large time from, um, you know, just about earlier than the 50s to the 80s up to her death. Yes. Um, and even with large ensembles, well, not just large ensembles, but even with us saying, hey, you can program this piece on a recital or hey, orchestra directors program this piece. Even performing these pieces, it's great and all, but I think what's even more important is getting a recording of that concert because let's be honest, in most cases, you are going to be recording your concerts and posting them online for people to watch and have access to even after the event, if you can't live stream it for whatever reason. Um, I think having that recording there available is extremely important, especially for works that are not don't have as widely available recordings. <laughs> well, we're hitting on one point here. And that's like, we've noticed that big monumental works by composers of marginalized groups are not surviving after their lifetime, despite getting like huge success during their lifetime to some extent, you know? Yeah. Um, Pulitzer Prize nominated pieces should stick around um, 
you know, and works by these composers should as well. But that hits on another topic. And that's like, Moore was an educator. Moore was putting in the work in academia. Um, so from what I could dig up, Moore was definitely invested in bringing black music to classrooms, college campuses, and other listening spaces. But I mean, we, we asked our composer friends and stuff like that, and we talked to other classmates and peers, all that, and Moore's not in the curriculums. Um, yeah. And that's at a variety of you know, different institutions. So um, these amazing composers, just like Julia Perry Moore is not being included in curriculums, which is, you know, sad irony considering her contributions to education. Yes. And there are many faculty members in different institutions who are making an effort to include composers like Perry and Moore in their curriculum, which is great, but that is something that should be a given like that should be something that's already automatically happening this shouldn't be something that it's like oh you include more more women and people of color in your listening curriculum that's great like no that should be happening already everyone yes but um what we have now is like a really perplexing dilemma of um this rediscovery phase of like reaching into the past and bringing this music forth um there's a a quote from more that I want to discuss. It says, Black music is a house of many mansions. Blacks have many musics, and some of them relate in an extremely universal way to the human condition. So that's a quote from Moore. And there's also another quote that I want to say, I guess a few, like they, they all connect in a way. So women could and did influence the building of a school, the choice of teachers, in the order and content of the church service. But there must have been a subtle etiquette that kept them in a particular place. Further, so far as I know, the influence of women on the music and the culture in the life of the black community, while known and applauded, was rarely, if ever, documented. So that's one thing to focus on, the documented part, you know, the, the idea that women are contributing to education, it's not documented more. Moore's efforts are not documented. And Moore was obviously a believer that black music could be introduced to, for example, white students. This is music that relates to the human condition, something more universal, something that could be in the classrooms just as much as music by white composers and such. So mm -hmm. Moore was trying to really reshape curriculums to recontextualize black music as something that is more common in listening spaces. There's also like the the question of why Moore waited so long to get um, those compositions rolling out. And this is another quote. One of the most evil effects of racism in my time was the limits it placed upon the aspirations of blacks. So that though I have been making up and creating music all my life, in my childhood or even in college, I would not have thought of calling myself a composer or aspiring to be one. That's from a Pulitzer Prize-nominated composer, that the, the social political environment was so stifling at the time, and women being composers, blacks being composers, was so removed from the equation that someone like Undine Smith Moore it took a long time to even consider herself a composer. Mm -hmm. So we have like this big, big mess, really, like in the sense of like 
you know, Moore was an academic pushing the envelope, trying to change things. And I mean, one of the things that happened was right after Moore retired, the Black Music Center at Virginia State College was without assistance. The momentum she put into it fizzled out and it just, you know, became, um, it closed. And so, you know, was this an indication of a lack of support institutionally? I would say for sure, you know? And this is a, a thing that we see happen in many organizations where someone champions a progressive cause and as soon as they are removed from the equation you know everything crumbles so Mm -hmm. when more passed when more retired it seems like a lot of the things she was pushing fizzled out and it's a problem today yes thoroughly but um you know we just want to um hit on those topics because there's so central to Moore's output. Um, There's so much at play here besides just Moore composing the music. Moore was in a really, um, was really in her time period looking at the current events, exploring women in the arts and like how curriculums are shaped, things like that. These are not just big achievements that she has for composers, but big achievements for women and people of color. So go ahead and get involved in the revival effort of, you know, tracking down the scores that are out there, getting new recordings of these works. And with all that said, I think we can wrap this up. So Undine Smith-Moore, amazing composer, and we hope you enjoyed this. Before we close out, though, we wanted to just tell you, definitely tune into the Julia Perry episode we did last time. And we wanted to remind you that there are three other podcasts going on each week that you can tune into live and that do end up on streaming platforms. So one was Earshot, hosted by Logan Barrett and Tucker Johnson. Super interesting there. I mean, it says on the website they're exploring the cutting edge of contemporary classical music, and I think it's true. <laughs> yes, and they're having some really great conversations over there, so please tune in. You don't want to miss out on that. Yeah, they're good friends of ours, but also some really big brains, so definitely check that out. Um, there's also Zachary Hale, who we mentioned played in the In Tempore concert, um, is also the podcast host of Play the Ink. So in that podcast... Um, Zachary Hale discussed the relationship between composers and performers and in interviews, guest artists, guest composers. So this is really interesting if you're all about that connection um, between composers, performers, where all those intersections are, and even the working relationships of composers who are working with performers today, vice versa. So this is just a really awesome one to dig into. And of course, we also have Musical Headwaters, by Diane. And in this one, Diane speaks with composers and learns about their creative process. So this is also a cool deep dive kind of one. Um, So we got a a good setup here, you know, like Mm -hmm. recovering the past, the composers who are forgotten. Um, Earshot is covering the cutting edge, what's happening right now. Play the Ink and Musical Headwaters are giving you the deep behind the scenes look the, the details you might really be interested in about like the working relationships of these composers, their creative processes, um, musicians, all that kind of stuff. Um, so these are really interesting podcasts and mm-hmm. we're glad to be, you know, here um, invited by camp to do these. Um, and of course, Han, thanks for joining us in as guest hosts. I'm sure we'll have you on another time. 
on one of our other episodes. Thanks for having me once again. I'm always happy to be here. Now, <laughs> since I have you here, would you mind wrapping up by recapping the upcoming uh, camp events and also the past ones that people can still tune into? Absolutely. So first was the NAC Benefit Concert and Open Discussion, which featured new music by minority composers and performers. This took place on September 30th. It was live streamed to YouTube and it is still up on YouTube for you to check out. The next event was In Tempore. This took place on October 3rd at the Tamuka Arts White House in Orlando, Florida. And it was also live streamed. And some of the pieces are found online on the Tamuka YouTube channel. So please do check those out. And those pieces are really incredible. There are two premieres on there. You don't want to miss that. That was so good. It was a really good concert. We really enjoyed it. And then the third and final concert happened just this past weekend is the Constellations concert. It took place at the St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Tampa, Florida, and was live streamed on Camp's YouTube channel and should still be up. Well, we're, we're talking to the people of the future, so um, we'll be tuned into that. And um, hopefully we saw you there, but uh, definitely it's going to be good, we're certain. Yes, and we hope that there's a live stream still up. We're saying that there is, but we don't know. We hope so. Yes, and do not forget the Campground 22 inaugural festival of camp. You can submit to this right now as a composer or a performer, and the deadline is on Halloween. Spooky time. Spooky. But the deadline is not spooky, and campground won't be spooky, so don't be deterred from applying. I promise it'll be a good time. Yes, this is just so awesome to see. And as you can hear, there's just a ton going on with camp. It's amazing to see this coming out of such tough times for live music um, and virtual. That stuff's hard to set up. Absolutely. Um, So big shout out to everyone involved making this happen. And we hope you tune in next time for Lost to Time. I'll see you next time. This is your host, Joshua Mallard, and our guest host, On Hitchin, signing out.